Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of the Warfighter Podcast, where we look to cover all things training and simulation. Colin Hillier, hello. And Tom Cutsfall, uh, we're back. We are back with a vengeance and bags of enthusiasm, if nothing else. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm pleased to say, as we, we sort of kicked it off in the right way by doing the first proper episode together as one, mm-hmm. just to let you know that not only did I make it back from the two-hour trek in and out to your farm, your, your beautiful farm, uh, <laughs> but the hire car company did give me my deposit back, which is great. <laughs> well, I did warn you. I, I did say come in a 4 by 4 not a expensive electric vehicle Colin. it just goes to show you you could take a hire car anywhere you don't any off-road uh no it was a pleasure to do with you and like you say it's always nice to do things face to face again it's a quite complex episode today quite busy lots to cover lots of interesting and exciting things to go but i'm conscious that as this is kind of the first episode of season two that there are people listening and may surprising as it may be colin may not listen to season one of the warfighter podcast um is it worth us kind of reintroducing ourselves uh, yeah, I understand there are people who may not have listened to before. Um, so so why are we here? What are we doing? I think it's just really to try and share some of the knowledge. I guess training is one of those things that you can apply to almost all domains. In fact, uh-huh. I think of a domain it's not applicable to. So there's loads of nicks and crannies, and our job is to discover them and share what knowledge we can from all around the bazaars. And yeah, we felt that the industry was lacking i suppose they kind of the podcast is a great medium to engage certain types of listeners and, and learners i we just felt that you know, it was something that we could kind of lend our support to the industry for now on that note colin would you like to introduce yourself yeah i'm colin hillier i've uh, sort of like tom previously served in the royal navy and spent loads of time doing all sorts of things from building simulators to running training programs that sort of thing so still have an interest in this area yeah, certainly. You're running into decades of experience in this area now, aren't you, Colin? Is that, is 1. that fair to say? 1.5 or something. 1.5. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'm Tom Constable, yeah, ex-British Army officer or former. I've got background in computer game technology. And when I left the military, one of the things that I did was bring that to bear on uh, bringing virtual reality into use within defense, which is good fun. I also got a bit of a background in training troops at all levels, which I think hopefully feeds into what we're doing. But now very much focusing on learning for other people and sharing knowledge. That's kind of where I want to hang my hat at the moment. The kind of people that would benefit from this podcast is a pretty broad church, I've got to say. Basically, anyone that's connected to defense training and simulations, that's ranging from the newly posted training officer or procurement officer in you know a niche area of synthetic training, whatever it might be. They may not have experience or a background in, in synthetics or in, in, in training or not know kind of what's available out there. So we want to be able to educate and inform those people that are newly posted, but all the way up to kind of senior executives within the defense industry or even in the military as well. And we do know we have kind of the whole spectrum listening as we regularly get feedback and chest pokes from people uh, as to ways in which we could refine and develop the way that we are presenting this. And it's been it's been wonderful to receive that because that's absolutely fundamental to what we do. There's no point in us doing this unless you, the listener, are actually benefiting from this. That's the sort of thing that keeps us going when someone says, oh, well, yeah, I'm in a new job related to this area. I'd better catch up on the back episodes and remind myself about some of these things. So that's that's nice. And yeah, look, if anyone's getting any ideas about something we're not covering, send them over. Yeah, so that feedback, if you want to give it us, please go to contact at warfighterpodcast.com. Yes, Colin, it's still contact at. And yes, the VP is awful and people will be slapping their foreheads, but it's fine. So moving on from that before you get on your soapbox about it what can people expect from this season 
believe it or not, uh, there are many people that we wanted to record on season one and for whatever reason, diaries or just the list was too long, we didn't get around to it. I'm pleased to say that the one is our guest on on this show, so that, that sort of ticks <laughs> one off the list. But loads, yeah, loads of areas that we just haven't covered and we're trying to be quite diverse because as we say, it's, it, it's a very broad church. Training can apply to almost anything. So, you know, what are we missing? What can we learn from? So when I sort of wrote the list down and what 12 subjects it didn't take me very long which was nice and do you want to give a, a flavor of some of the topics that you think we might be covering this season i think really it's all around some of the cttp topics so things like you know how do, how do we leverage data how's cloud impact what we're doing how do you, you know distributed training the, none of these are new ideas but definitely coming to the front of the thinking if we're thinking about how we develop the future greatest training systems ever you know that's that's sort of the mandate what would that involve so definitely around there. And then also just trying to go way off piece and talk to people that are in you know, sort of very parallel industries and learn from them. Yeah, and not, not just the technical solutions for training. We'll be obviously opening it up to non-technical solutions and, and kind of trying to do thought leadership around that. Now, people would have heard Colin say four letters there, CTTP. Don't worry if that's new to you, Colin will be explaining clearly and succinctly what that is just before we go into our first chat. So... Now, we haven't yet mentioned them, and it would be remiss to mention the season sponsors. Probably should, as they're paying us. <laughs> well, you know, that as well. So the sponsor, the lead sponsor, the only sponsor for this <laughs> podcast. So I've been speaking with Babcock International for months now. It's been a really enjoyable journey as to time flash out where we want to launch the season, what's the process we've got to get through. And what they are really focused on is trying to ensure that the continued sharing of knowledge throughout the industry and that's why they've chosen to sponsor us for this season yeah it's pretty exciting to have you know someone like Babcock say yeah the podcasts were supporting Colin again an organization that gets it I think I mean in seriousness this is one about uh sharing knowledge but also a little bit of focus around a really important topic so CTTP if you're across the pond probably mean much to you but for the UK little old UK it's a big deal really the challenge is to build that future for land, that future engine for land training, to quote them. What does that involve? What are the technologies? What are the non-technological aspects? How do you transform training for the next 15, 20 years? So it's kind of a nice point to have that relationship with someone who's actually going to go and do it. We can sort of look into those key interesting areas uh, aligned with that program. And let's let's be frank, the British Army are being ambitious. They're trying to punch above their weight. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. It's really exciting. And the final thing, just to plug before we go into the chat with our lead sponsor and a huge, exciting, exclusive announcement is that we will be following on from that exclusive announcement. We'll be interviewing one of the kind of leading minds over at CAE, Dr. Jennifer McArdle. And, and it was awesome to chat with her. And yes, we've been trying to get her on for months and months. And she kind of draws upon our experience and knowledge and research in order to like allow us to better understand and learn from the way historically we've been doing training transformation and some of the kind of key challenges moving forward for not just the UK, but also kind of US and other militaries around the world when it comes to adapting training to address the rapidly changing threats to the future of our country and nations. Yes, definitely one to look forward to very enjoyable discussion with Jennifer. But first up, we're very pleased to have Matt Tutor because he, he's the campaign director for CTTP at Babcock. And he's chosen our humble little show to make the announcement about the Babcock team for CTTP. So on to Matt. Let's do it. Hello, Colin, and hello, Tom. Hello. So, Matt, what, what on earth 
came over Babcock that they wanted to sponsor the Warfighter podcast. <laughs> Apart from my incessant nagging. <laughs> well, hey, look, we're really pleased to be sponsoring the Warfighter podcast. I was an avid listener of Series 1. I love the framing of challenges. You had a great set of interviewees who were really additive to the thought leadership across the entire sector and, you know, delivered in a style that was equally pleasant to listen to, whether you were walking the dog or on a commute or just sat at work. So congratulations on Series 1 and we're delighted to be sponsoring Series 2. A little bit about Babcock. We support training across the British Army Enterprise through programmes such as Royal School of Military Engineering across individual and trade training domains, driving operational readiness, and we're building on our current Army Collective Training experience by bringing across the lessons from working with organisations like the London Fire Brigade and the Met Police, where we also deliver initial professional training, special-to-role training, and that command element training in a collective environment. So I hope this variety will really add another dimension and points of interest to your current listeners and drive additional communities of interest to the podcast to add you know, a different dimension to the topics that you're going to cover this series yeah and, and that's always been our goal and it's, it's nice to hear the feedback you know that some people find it genuinely interesting we're, we're trying to keep kind of keep it broad <laughs> keep it not too sort of technically heavy and yeah it's great to have a partner which has has great breadth because as you say that keeps it interesting but um just a bit about you you know you're three weeks into this role new to Babcock so we're not going to ask you too many questions about you know the, Thank the, the, the deep the deep workings of Babcock but just give us a bit of flavor about your role and sort of that take what are, what are Babcock trying to achieve with your leadership in this position yeah sure a little bit about me I, I have more than 20 years experience in the defense sector working for big primes, OEMs, small organizations, government, and indeed startups. I think that breadth of experience will bring alive some of the challenges that we as industry can look to answer for the Army Collective Training System. I think the other point of difference perhaps is that um, whilst I'm being inside the defense camp, I'm, I'm kind of an outsider. So I haven't served in the military, although my father was in the army and that, for those that know, make me a pad brat. <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, I'm deeply dedicated and passionate to the defense cause. It really means something to an individual when you see a gated environment uh, with people with weapons on that gate protecting your freedoms. And that's really important to me. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because in this role, you've got that kind of core understanding of how defense works, but you probably... You know, maybe haven't been tainted, shall we say, by the way we've always done it. And so they, you know, you're going to come at this and go, you know, well, you know, we're back in the day when I was in my foxhole, you know, this is, this is the way we did it. But actually you've got to go, no, let's look at this logically. Let's use the, the experience. And, and I'm sure like Babcock's not a small organization. You've got lots of people you can draw upon for that experience, but then you can apply your own mind to it, which sounds sensible to me. Yeah, Tom, absolutely. I mean, I've got a great team of, of really experienced people that can provide exactly that. But I'm coming to the role without any preconceived ideas of how the army should do collective training and how that collective training enterprise should be transformed and what the experience should look like. So I'm able to focus on you know, really facilitating the solutions that the army needs rather than imposing the ones that I think they should have. I mean, that's something that's been quite clear is that they want genuine innovation and it's always hard, yeah, sometimes that outsider's perspective questioning, well, why, why are you doing it that way is the starting point. 
and Colin, on, on that as well, mm. I, I think it's worth saying that that innovation is not completely within the technical domain. And, mm. and hopefully, again, this is where I can bring some of my broader experience to bear. It's about bringing that technological transformation, of course, digitalization, secure by design, data-driven enterprises. But actually, the commercial model is really vital in how we present an agile service that can flex to the uncertainty of the current global situation. So I understand that there's been a, a short name change and now it's the Army Collective Training System is the, is the, the term we're going to use. But what do you see as the main challenges for this program then? Yeah, great question. I mean, you and particularly Tom with your army background will know as well as anybody that the British Army is one of the best trained armies in the world, which is, for example, why they're brilliant at training other armies as well. And that's because training and collective training in particular have always been what the army spends the vast majority of its time doing. They know the value of training. But the army also knows that training has got to be relevant to the threats that they face and the evolving strategic context. And since that context is changing so fast, the Army's focus on changing how it trains so that what it trains for can change according to the context. So half the challenge for CTTP relates, or sorry, or ACTS, or the, the Army Collective Training System, we've all got to get used to that, relates to the training enterprise. You know, that vastly complex commercial, technological, administrative, logistical framework that allows for the design and delivery of training. And central to this is digitalization and in particular data. How do we create it? How do we collect it? How do we process it? And how do we learn from it? And this is, in itself is a huge and hugely complex challenge. I think the other half of the challenge relates to the training experience. What are the soldiers going to be trained for? How relevant and challenging can we make it? How can we exploit the latest simulation technologies to augment live training, to make it more rigorous and more realistic? How can we optimize training for discrete teams and individual soldiers who make up those teams? We're moving on to the uh, Warfighter First. This is the first exclusive announcement that we've ever been given the honor of, which yeah, that's a lot. It's a big weight on my shoulders here, Colin. Which is but why I mean, full announcement. I mean, we've made others, but this, this is true. Um, I won't name won't name them all. But so, in true military fashion, I'm going to slope my shoulders and give the responsibility back over to you, Matt, to, for the big announcement. Yeah, thanks, Tom. I think we've got an amazing team that will be bidding for the Army Collective Training System. I think it will give a real point of difference to the warfighter going forward. At Babcock, we've got a record of a learning-centric approach, improving the soldier's experience and enabling and sustaining enterprise adaption, pivoting from training silos to an integrated enterprise and increasing adaptability, flexibility and choice. Our other partners, in no particular order, are Jacobs, who have a history of ensuring an assured and agnostic procurement through life, creating an inclusive and sustainable SME supply chain ecosystem. CAE, who deliver transformation through the integration of advanced global technologies across the defence spectrum and drive helping to develop the highest levels of mission readiness. In addition to that core team, we've got great support from Accenture, who have a global reputation in evidencing and enacting the case for change for fast-paced technology and allowing targeted training interventions, and McKinsey, who are the Army efficiency partner, 
who have a track record of creating positive and enduring change in that program and are really looking to transform at the speed of relevance within our consortium. So we're calling ourselves Team Crucible. And as soon as somebody suggested it, it was really the only name we seriously considered. So Matt, that's as a crucible in terms of something used to refine and purify alloys of metal. That's sort of where the concept's coming Colin, from. Colin, have you been on their market? Are you part of their marketing team here? I could be. I mean, that would be <laughs> I would stand the fee. Okay. Yeah, job offer in, in training. <laughs> no, but look, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. An analogy could be the resultant alloy, yeah, that has qualities. Which, which is stronger spread. than the component parts exactly. of the alloy. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> So look, I mean that that's a fantastic intro. Uh, clearly, you don't and can't. Uh, you would have the time to, and it's early days in, in this whole process. So, thank you for just giving us an overview in that. Just before we move on, almost forgot is that uh, you guys have been busy in the background creating the micro site for your team and a launch video, which I'm very much looking forward to watching. Uh, whereabouts can people find that information? Obviously, all the W's dot team hyphen crucible dot co dot uk. Perfect. So the second half of this, Matt, we've got, uh, you know, one of our guests is, is from your team partners, CAE. Increasable. And, and yeah. Jenny McArdle, who was definitely on the shortlist and, and we could only fit so many in season one, so it's great to have her. But do you want to sort of say a few words about what she brings to the party? So, yeah, sure. Dr. Jenny McArdle has got a real depth of knowledge in this space. And she's been recently looking at that whole training landscape. When was the last large-scale training reform? Yeah, was that in the Cold War and the abduction of things like Top Gun, Red Flag, combat training centers? And does that still remain applicable today? I think it's fair to say that she'll argue that uh, it isn't applicable today. And she'll look at the challenges of training for contested logistics, training in the context of a lack of sanctuaries, um, how to operate with dominance in a degraded battle space and all sorts of subjects like that. So I'm um, really looking forward to what Jenny has to say and happy interview. Let's do it. So welcome, Jenny. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. I've followed your podcast for a while, so it's great to join you both. Well, we've been very keen to get you on for a while. So there you go. The feeling's mutual here. No, we started off the first episode of season one with Colonel Arnell David, where we looked at how to build better warfighters from a kind of warfighter's perspective. And I'm hoping we're going to achieve something similar around how do we look at training, but from a, I mean, I don't know if you describe yourself as a, an academic background or a policy background, but certainly from a different angle. And I think on the Warfighter podcast, we're about bringing different perspective, different backgrounds in order to help kind of share knowledge. So we're really excited to have you here. Thank you. In keeping with tradition for this podcast, and I like to keep it going, we'd like you to introduce yourself, give us a little bit about your background and kind of how you find yourself in the position you do today. Great. Well, I am the Senior Director of Defense Programs at CAE. I joined CAE from Improbable, where I was the head of research. And from Improbable, I actually came from academia, where I taught a mix of civilians and military officers at a small university in Rhode Island that was partnered with the Naval War College. Um, my PhD is in synthetic training. I've been following this field for a while. It's something I'm incredibly passionate about. So yes, I guess I definitely, I come at this from much more of an academic or policy direction than someone like Arnell that's served in uniform. But hopefully uh, my perspective offers something a little bit different and will be of use to your listeners. So during the prep call, we covered a, a myriad of topics. Uh, one of the key ones that stood out that I think would be good to get to establish kind of the foundation of this conversation was that you you felt the Cold War was a great example 
of how the US and the allies kind of need to rethink their approach to training or needed to rethink their approach to training. But I was wondering, that's quite a big statement. So I was wondering if you could elaborate on that and how it's relevant to today. Yeah. So I find history to be such an instructive tool when thinking about reform and adaptation today. And the Cold War is just such a rich example when you're trying to grapple with things like training innovation. During the Cold War, you know, as we all know, technological change, the painful experience in Vietnam, it basically inspired a series of paradigm shifts um, in the U.S.'s approach to training. And these shifts gave rise to a range of different innovations. So we're talking about the Navy's Top Gun School, the Air Force's Red Flag Exercise, the Army's creation of the National Training Centers and the MILES program, which was the advent of laser-based training for soldiers. And these weren't just technology-based changes. They were also organizational changes, a full training transformation, if you will. And these changes were put to test in the Gulf War alongside new operational concepts and technologies. And, you know, they provided the world really concrete evidence of U.S. tactical military superiority. So, you know, today I'd argue that we're at the similar inflection point. But unlike the Cold War, the U.S. and you arguably obviously our allies like the U.K., we're not going to have the luxury of time to respond after the first sortie is fired. We're going to need to reform in relative peacetime so that we can deter and, if necessary, fight and win. You know, obviously, and you can read like so many texts and policy reports on this, we all know that over the last two decades, you know, China and Russia, they've carefully studied the American way of war. And honestly, I'd argue I'd argue the UK broadly fits within this construct as well. And it's this way of war that's grounded in things like power projection, technology, and ability to operate from sanctuaries. And obviously, you know, China and Russia, they've gone to school on this way of war in an attempt to kind of invalidate our operational concepts and our technological strengths. And so as a result, you know, within DC, and I'd say, you know, within the labyrinthine corridors of the Pentagon, when we think about what our future force should look like and how we respond to this, there's this tendency to think about future operational concepts like joint all domain command and control or the various technologies that will make this a reality so that we can you know, fight and win. But what I think the war in Ukraine brutally reminds us is that wars will remain an innately human endeavor. Technology may change the character of war, but it's not going to remove humans from the battlefield. Human ingenuity, spirit, professionalism, and intellectual edge born of training and education, they're going to continue to be the deciding factor in combat. And I think the Cold War is so good at making that a reality. So when I think about the future of training today, sometimes I think it's really useful to look backwards to look forward. So how can we push forward that training transformation now, like we saw in you know the 1960s, the 1970s, into the 1980s? Very interesting you bring up the Ukraine war. It feels to me that there's been such a seismic change in the way that, you know, obviously me as a veteran, I'm perceiving warfare now because, you know, I, I was brought up in the generation of Afghanistan and, and like you say, working from sanctuaries and projecting power. But this war seems completely different and it seems to have changed it. So I'm quite curious to ask, prior to the war, where would you assess our training capabilities being, and, and again, happy for you to answer that from a US perspective, if that would be easier, or a UK perspective, were we prepared for the innovations and the changes in the TTPs? So it depends on what element the Ukrainian fight we're focusing on. So there are some things that are fundamentally, I don't want to say new, because they've been around for a while, like what many people would refer to as, say, that invisible battle space, the use of electronic warfare and cyber. Obviously, there's aspects that are new 
like the incredible proliferation of uncrewed systems. We've seen them in past conflicts. It's incredibly ubiquitous today. And then there's some things that, I mean, we haven't seen for ages. Like, you know, you're seeing kind of World War One style trench warfare in some instances. So I think for the U.S., there are things that we have been looking at. Uh, we've been talking about how do we better bring cyber and electronic effects into training for a while. In fact, you can go back to the 2018 uh, National Defense Authorization Act where there's you know, direction to do this. We have looked at how we can integrate, say, cyber and electronic effects into training, but there's more, obviously, that could be done. I think we have looked at how we can bring, say, human-machine teaming into training, but it's something that's newer, and it's something that we haven't necessarily built the right training systems around, particularly when you're looking at a synthetic environment. So I think in some cases we were prepared. I think it's fair to say the U.S. is one of the best trained, best prepared countries on Earth. And I think many of our allies like the U.K. you could put in that category with us. But at the same time, there's always elements of the current or future fight that you don't predict. We're not clairvoyant. And so it's how do you create these adaptive training systems that allow you to have that flexibility so as new lessons are learned from the battlefield, you can easily integrate that in and provide that flexibility to the warfighter. I, know, that's I great. don't think we have that architecture today that allows for that flexibility. You just answered my question. <laughs> I was going to add uh, so the really good point. The first question was, do you think we've got that? And then secondly, obviously, the natural follow-on question from that is, okay, fine. So if we acknowledge or accept that we're probably not there just yet, what are the next steps to achieve that from your perspective? I think we could break this down into two categories. So there is physical infrastructure and how do you build much more flexible physical infrastructure that can adapt? And then there's obviously that virtual and constructive environment. So we can look at many of our national training centers. There are these physical you know, static training centers that provide incredibly high-end training. But when we talk about things like urban warfare, there is a desire to create, say, an entirely new urban training facility that's much more expansive, that mimics, say, you know, the complexity of the megalopolises of the future. And that's just not practical. It's incredibly expensive. So how do you create physical infrastructure that is modular, that provides a new experience to the warfighter every time they enter it, where you can theoretically adapt the training centers you have or add to it? And there's some really interesting kind of physical type infrastructure that's being brought to market that's modular, where you can assemble it and reassemble it, where you can reconfigure it. It's instrumented, so you're capturing you know, that physical picture as things are ongoing, and you can theoretically then integrate that into a virtual and constructive environment. And I think when we talk about flexibility, it's the virtual and constructive environment that becomes much more interesting. You know, In the past, when we created these synthetic environments, so that's virtual and constructive simulation, yeah. we did it in a way that was incredibly monolithic. There were these kind of complex beasts where every single layer, so you know the, the terrain, the force-on-force -force models, everything was tightly coupled and connected. And now there's these principles when you build out these synthetic worlds where you can adopt these much more modular, modular open systems approaches where the idea is you can plug and play. And I realize that's a little bit rich because it'll never be like Lego blocks, but where you can much more easily bring in additional models so that this synthetic world can evolve as the character of war changes. 
So if we had learned something new from, say, the cyber environment, you could bring in a new cyber model. Or if a better cyber model is developed, because quite frankly, we're still struggling in that space, but you could theoretically bring in that new model. Um, you could bring in a, a new model of, say, the space environment or you know the undersea environment, what have you. So that basically the synthetic world involves in tandem with warfare versus becoming this kind of legacy behemoth like from the moment it's fielded. So it's basically, it's creating these adaptive systems that are flexible, that they're modular. And ideally, you are looking at that kind of training continuum where you're creating a range of different devices and experiences that allow for flexibility as well. So you don't constantly have to go to some kind of high-end training center where you get that training, whether you're at your home station, at a training center, deployed, or at home, and you just want to get some extra you know, reps and sets in. Okay, what you're suggesting sounds great. It's a very sensible direction. I suppose with your policy hat on, there's one thing, I suppose, designing something to be modular, plug and play inverted commas, uh, scalable at need and all that kind of stuff. But then how do you ensure at a policy level that when you do see that the, the face of war is changing, how do you make sure that that is reflected in its training as quickly as possible and as responsive as, as possible? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. That's a tough question. You know, unfortunately, the way policy is made, it can be somewhat sluggish. You know, the National Defense Authorization Act comes out every year. It takes a while to put in place. And oftentimes, you know, it's responding and it's projecting three years out. And if you're trying to respond to something rapidly that's occurring in the field, it can be very difficult for policy to be the right thing that can kind of nudge you or push you in that direction. Uh-huh. I think... What you want to be able to do is have policy guide that overarching architecture and framework, which is ensuring that, you know, that overarching construct of what a synthetic environment should look like or what these kind of modular LVC type environments should look like, where you're bringing, you know, the live, the virtual and the constructive together, that they're designed with flexibility in mind. And then... You know, when it comes to bringing in additional models, um, reconfiguring some kind of physical architecture, that no longer is a policy problem because it's pushed down at a much lower level. And you should be able to have that kind of responsiveness from a training provider level or the military should be able to work hand in glove, say, with their industry partner who, if they're providing, you know, aspect of that synthetic environment to easily swap in and out that model. So I think provided policy is providing the overarching construct, you shouldn't have to be operating at that level to get the learning that you need. This is all useful context for the discussion, but thinking more back to our home and CTTP, one of the comments from the leadership in charge of the program was talking about, and just to quote poorly, we still want the training to be outdoors, very much about getting out there, getting dirty, discovering all the normal constraints of warfare, the the embuggerances. And I just wonder what's your thoughts? You've talked a lot about technology and how the LBC is brought together, but how do you see that in the context of what, say, the UK might want to do, say, to not lose that? So, for example, not put everything in a synthetic hall where we're all in VR. And, and I'm, quite, I'm not suggesting one is right or another. I'm just quoting their kind of intent. What's your thoughts and how you introduce technology where you've still got to be out in the field? Yeah, I mean, I I would agree with you. So I just, before I answer that question, I do want to caveat. I'm a firm believer that you should start with the training end goal up front and work backwards from there. And how you bring in technology should be based on that training end goal. 
And sometimes you probably don't want a technology solution. Sometimes virtual reality might be useful. Sometimes it won't. Maybe sometimes augmented reality is useful. But I certainly, you know, despite the fact I work for a company where we bring technology solutions to market, I'm focused on technology. I certainly don't want anyone to think that I think technology will be the answer to our problems. I, I don't. It is definitely not a panacea. To get back to your question, there are certain types of training, direct fires training that must take place outdoors, either because you know a synthetic environment or an indoor training environment just won't have that same level of realism or because it'll just fundamentally result in negative training outcomes. Um, I think the best example, and I, I mentioned this earlier, when we think about training outdoors is the MILES program. Obviously, it was really revolutionary when it was created, but there's just incredible limitations with it today, and that can also result in negative training. So for instance, with uh, the MILES program, you can have a soldier hiding behind a bush and a flurry of laser machine gun bullets could be hitting their position and they can walk away. That's obviously not realistic. And there's been work done to basically bring, you know, the MILES program into instrumented live environments where, you know, lasers can replicate the engagement effects of intended line of sight weapons. And that obviously, you know, if you're in an instrumented environment using MILES, that's going to have far more realism. But, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier, you know, the goal is to have these modular and flexible tools. MILES is modular. You can use it at home or deploy but if you're not in an instrumented range, you're going to have some of those same inherent challenges to using a laser-based system. And I don't necessarily know if I have the right answer for this, but I do think there are technology-based tools that could give you that live experience now in different ways that I think you know they exist right now or they're slowly coming to market, but we're seeing it more in the commercial sector. So for instance, theoretically, you could send up a UAV. You could do a quick scan of an environment that labels objects within that environment, provided we have decent models of the various weapon systems that we plan to employ and their effects on various materials. We could theoretically place people within that live environment and then have that exercise or training experience mimicked in this constructive digital twin. The effects can be modeled within that, and then it could be played back out within that live environment. So for the warfighter, that experience is completely live, but you can't necessarily hide behind a bush because you know that modeling and simulation is taking place within a constructive digital twin of that world. Now, as I was thinking about this, I recognize there's inherent compute problems here, depending on the environment that could be really challenging. So for instance, if you're operating in a forest, but there are tools that could give you much more realism within a live environment without you know, spending an incredible amount of money instrumenting an entire range space, which we're not going to be able to do all the time. So I think it's a question of when does that make sense? How often would we want to use tools like that? When do we need that flexibility? And working backwards from there. But if that does make sense, I don't think this is this is within the realm of the possible. I could scan my my office today if I wanted with a quick tool I could download from the internet. So, you know, we are moving in that direction. It's just a question of like, does it make sense to go there from a training standpoint? I think that's interesting. And and I think there's some interesting views in terms of what the UK are already doing that might feed into this. But yeah, you're right. We haven't really solved that problem. I think the other, the other thing that's always interesting to me, and I know this is something we mentioned in the very first episode, is how do we get training to change the way we fight and i'll give you the example if we use one of your cyber models that you mentioned or let's say a comms degradation model 
And then the effect on that is so big that it stops training. The next thing that happens is they turn it off. So they continue training. You know, this question is like, well, is that the right response? Because we're trying to make something more realistic, but then when it's too realistic, we just turn the setting back down. Is that something you've, you've observed? Yes. And, you know, as a result, obviously, we oftentimes don't train for ty- different types of cyber effects unless that is the primary training and goal, you know, fighting in the dark, fighting without communications. So this is the the problem I guess I have with the debate when it comes to cyber is I think we typically think about bringing in cyber as this sabotage, not sabotaged. Everything is going to be shut down. So let's not train for it. Or, you know, everything is... Let's ignore it. It's going to be too difficult. Yeah. To be honest, most of the synthetic training tools that are out there, the cyber models are like that. It's binary. And I think there are ways to bring in cyber in a more nuanced way that even if it doesn't, say, mimic the way cyber effect would really manifest, it could still provide that learning. So within the cyber community, they have this they have this triad, the CI triad. So it's a confidentiality, the integrity and the accessibility of information. So if we're just to think about cyber effect modeling within that triad, which I realize is still, it's better than on-off, but it's not, you know, incredibly realistic, you could start to bring in some interesting type effects. So for instance, we focus on the subversion piece, which is what I actually think would probably be the most interesting thing to simulate from a cyber standpoint. For our warfighters, you could start to think about how do you subvert information, say within like a blue force tracker, or how do you subvert GPS information on a device? I mean, whatever it is that you want to do from a training standpoint. And basically, you're looking to get warfighters to constantly be looking at the information they have and correlating it to figure out, well, does this actually make sense? Is this accurate? Because at the end of the day, you want people to have that kind of agility within the field, okay. that kind of creative thinking. And then, of course, there's you know the de- degradation piece. I mean, whether things are really going to be on off or whether their access to you know comms networks will come in and out. I mean, I think that would f- be fundamentally more realistic. So I think there are ways to do this in a, a slightly more nuanced way that actually really wouldn't be difficult from a modeling standpoint. Um, and I think, quite frankly, we just have to get used to doing it all the time. I mean, well, we know that any future battle space is just going to be incredibly contested. Uh, we are going to be operating you know, an environment just replete with adversary electronic and cyber effects. So if we're not training to that constantly, we're just not going to be ready for the fight as it exists today, let alone the future fight against a high-end competitor or adversary. I love that point you made about, and I think it rings true to our harking back to season one, episode one with Arnel David talking about building better warfighters. And it's about ensuring commanders are continually stretched and uh, looking to be different, unique, bespoke, not following the prescribed course of action without having the ability to think dynamically. And if commanders knew that there's a chance that their GPS may be inaccurate, that constant second guessing, that constant triangulating themselves, looking around, reviewing their maps, etc. I think it's such a great way of training that dynamism into them. And yeah, if it isn't happening, it definitely should be happening going forward. So great to hear that. And nice to hear that it connects with last season as well. I mean, my only other thought, sorry, there's a bit back and forth, Jennifer, but I often thought we have doctrine, right? And we have TTPs. And often sometimes the training is there just to ensure we follow it. But if it's wrong, like if that's not going to work and the training reveals it. So does training become much more of an experimental, not from the point of like we're experimenting technology, 
but it's a more experimental environment for our TTPs. You know, you made a point earlier about, you know, there are no bastions, right? But so we can't have a single unitary command and control headquarters out forward because it will get identified and destroyed. So you've got to split that up. You know, same with the logistics channel. Are we truly using training to define how we fight as opposed to just making sure it makes us look good? I think that's such a good point. I'm not sure we do this enough, but there are such, not to go back to history, but I love history. There are so many good examples of how training has been this amazing kind of venue for experimentation as well. And the best example in my mind is the Louisiana maneuvers in the lead in to, well, the U.S. participation in World War II. This was meant to be a massive training event, but entirely new ideas around how you know, the tank should be employed within the U.S. came out of that exercise. Patton basically distinguished himself with this amazing left hook where he maneuvered quite quickly you know, with his armored unit. Um, Eisenhower obviously distinguished himself as well. And I think you know, for us to not think that training can be this experimentation place as well, I think is short-sighted. And you know, as we build out these flexible environments, you should be able to train and develop new ideas at the same time. If you are working through a problem and you come up with a new idea to that problem that hasn't been seen before, that should be something that can inform future TTPs. I mean, it's just a natural place. Um, if, you're, if your training is difficult enough, if you are instilling that kind of agility in your warfighters, that creative thinking, naturally you should be developing TTPs from the ground up because people will come up with new ways to solve problems. Training should not be entirely based, um, especially when you get to higher levels of training on rote memorization. We don't want people like that. We want people that are flexible, they're agile, they're, they're creative thinkers, they can come up with new ideas. So yeah, I, I would agree with you. From my experience, a, a more kind of modern example of that, again, just from my personal experiences, working alongside the Royal Marines with the Future Commando Force, those guys have essentially had to reinvent the way that they were go are going to operate within the future British Armed Forces. And when I went down to visit them, I was watching them just self-generating TTPs and SOPs based on their new structures and listening and engaging with feedback at every single level, doesn't matter what rank or seniority, because everyone could have a great idea. And it was very kind of watching them be very humble about how they assess their performance and how they could improve it was a, a great, I think, example to see you know, how it could be done. I think we're coming to the end of the interview now. It's been enlightening. And I think as Colin said before we went into the interview, each one of these topics is an interview in itself. However, just before we close out, I just want to come back to you, Jenny, and ask if there's any key topic you feel like we've been remiss in not touching upon. I mean, we've seen these really incredible advancements in learning science and learning engineering. So I think perhaps that'd be something that's worth talking about. I'm watching Colin's face light up with glee here. So yes, please go on. I mean, this is, I've got to say this is an area that I probably, I'm not that au fait with. So please kind of expand. So for listeners that might not be familiar with learning science or learning engineering. So learning science is this interdisciplinary field that draws on, you know, neuroscience, cognitive psychology, education, research, data science, um, and anthropology among many other disciplines. And the idea is you want to better understand how people learn, the factors that affect learning, and the technologies that facilitate it, and the best means to evaluate it. While well, learning engineering takes learning sciences and it employs these human design methodologies and then data-informed decision-making to support learners in their development. And the idea is that learning should be happening in a much more tailored 
and effective way. What makes me, I guess, really interested in this is it has such incredible potential for defense organizations. It can provide that kind of intellectual scaffolding for us to move from these input-focused events, um, which is what you know defense education and training is primarily composed of, to instead focus on outcomes with an emphasis on you know the individual or the collective. And I know we talked about this a little bit earlier, but obviously, you know, data provides the means to do that. And to do that at pace. So as we, we further instrument our live environments and as we push you know, more training into synthetic environments, we're going to be able to capture an incredible amount of data on individuals and collectives. And so, you know, if we combine that data with sensor systems that measure various physiological attributes in real time, we can start to provide far more targeted and individualized learning. And you know, via artificial intelligence, we can start to nudge individuals or collectives in real time or at the right time for them to learn. So for, I guess, a good example of this actually comes from this concept that's called the spacing effect. So it's this finding that people are more likely to remember something if you spread out the learning over time rather cramming it all in at once. And basically, there are certain, certain companies. So for instance, I think Duolingo is an awesome example of this that have developed things called spaced repetition models. So they try to identify the best time for people to review or practice certain skills. Um, and basically Duolingo uses AI to identify when is the best time to nudge a person to practice new words in a foreign language. And obviously that same concept can be pulled over into defense. So with the right environmental data, the right data on individuals, the right data on collectives, those models can provide far more targeted learning that refreshes individuals and collectives rather than kind of relying on this industrial model of training where we're cycling through these various training events. I mean, I, I really like love this because as we start to think about how do we entirely re-architect training, my thought is, you know, how do you start to bring in those learning sciences from the ground up as well. So not only do you have this more flexible training environment that evolves with the changing character of war, but also it's targeted at creating much better training efficacy. Um, And obviously via that data, that rich data, we can have more effective training at speed. And you all know this far better than I do. Obviously, you know, training is this core constituent element of battlefield effectiveness, um, which we, you know, we're seeing right now in Ukraine. And so to me, like the more we can leverage data, the more we can leverage learning science, the more we can re-architect these training environments, the more we're going to be investing in that future efficacy on the battlefield. So this is just you know something that as we think about this, I really hope we're focused on you know the learning science and the learning engineering piece of this. Yeah, another exciting thing that you said there, which all makes sense. I mean, when I left the military, I qualified as a teacher. I was you know, learning all about differentiation in the classroom and how to engage different types of learners and just try to relate that back at the time to what we were doing in the military. And we weren't doing it well enough. And then you've got different types of learners when it comes to a new diversity. And, and again, that's an important element to, I think, a successful military is having different minds and different ways of approaching problems in order to be successful on the battlefield. But it doesn't mean that they all learn the same way. So if, we, if there's some sort of module or AI that can understand on a personal level the individual and how they best learn and uh, instead of just saying go and do your cyber module and you have to sit in front of a pc and click through 400 slides and then you're off at the end which you could just keep doing redoing until you pass it not saying that i did that or you can <laughs> did that colin but you, you nerded off about it but anyway 
Um, I think it sounds like a really exciting and innovative approach. I mean, it sounds really hard and very complicated, but very exciting as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's just this interesting opportunity for us to look across the, not just your, the primary providers of training for the military, but to look more broadly at various commercial applications and feel, feel look at how we can more effectively bring that in. If there's good models for based repetition models that are you know, within the commercial industry that's focused on, say, the civilian marketplace, I think there's ways where we can take that, we can adapt it, we can bring that into our, our training ecosystem. And that's why, you know, developing something that's flexible, that allows for that is so important. Because you want to provide the best to the military, whether that's, you know, designed by, you know, the defense industrial base or elsewhere. So building in that flexibility by design is incredibly important. I think, unfortunately, go back to the same issue about how does training or how do we want what we want to do with training challenge doctrine. So in the UK, we have something called JSP 822, DSAT, I think it's called SAT in the US, but systems approach to training. And that policy document does a really good job of creating very monolithic, inflexible training structures that says, you know, back to Tom's point, I don't care who you are, you've got to go from A through to Z3, you've got to do that whole thing, whether or not that's what you need. So I don't think there's any shortage of good ideas in this area. I think the learning sciences, you know, anything from the theory to just some practical application of that is really helpful. But I keep coming back to this point. We've really got to challenge the current structures and policies that are actually holding us back. Now, that's my personal soapbox. But that's easy to <laughs> no, I, 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 I obviously agree with you. And that's why, I guess, maybe I should have used this example earlier, but that's why when I think about training transformation, I like the Cold War model. It wasn't them just taking better, newer technology and tacking it on to past training paradigms. They used training as a tool to come up with entirely new KTPs, entirely new doctrine. I mean, Top Gun is such a good example of that. And that was an organizational change as well. That wasn't just a technology change. I mean, actually, it was really an organizational change. And it was leadership accepting a level of risk in training so that they could come up with you know those new tactics, those new concepts. And if we're not willing to invest in that organizational change as well, and we're just focused on the technology like the synthetic training environment, we're not going to get there. So to me, training transformation, it's not just technology. It's that organizational and operational change around it. Should we call it organizational transformation? <laughs> yes. Then we should definitely leave it there. That was a great final last discussion, I think. Just before we finish this interview, Jenny, thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's been great and a great first interview for season two. Do you have any final last thoughts or any way you'd like to direct the listeners if they want to find out more about yourself or the projects or the research you're working on? Sure. So two things, because I really like bookending things, which is part of the reason why I love the movie Gladiator. So to go back to the Cold War, because that's where we started, yeah. there's this wonderful example where shortly after the Gulf War, the Senate Armed Services Committee, they asked Major General McCaffrey, who was the, 20, uh, the commander of the 24th Infantry Division, how the war was won in only 100 hours. And he responded, this war did not take 100 hours to win. It took 15 years. And I just love that response because it was an indicative of like a generation of leaders that saw the military fracture in Vietnam and they spent the majority of their adult life, you know, reforging the military through this, you know, incredible organizational and technological change process. And as we all know, you know, some really amazing reforms to training as well. 
when I think about what we should be doing today, it's obviously going to be a longer term process, especially if we're talking about organizational reform. But this is something we should obviously start doing now and investing in that future. And I guess, so since you asked me to plug some resources, if people are interested in reading some of the stuff that I've written on synthetic training, um, in the future of training, the best place to go is to look up my name in War in the Rocks. There's a series of articles there from everything from military readiness to live virtual constructive training, even you know ideas when it comes to the metaverse and defense. And then the Center for New American Security, where I'm an adjunct senior fellow, we're running a whole program on the future of American training that'll get at different concepts like how do you train for protection? How do you train for a lack of sanctuaries? Um, that report will be dropping this spring. And so please look out for it. More reading for the plan. Super. Thank you so much for your time and look forward to hopefully seeing you around the bazaars in the future. Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed uh, chatting with you both. That was a great discussion. One of the problems with having someone like Jennifer on is any one of those areas we could spend 20 minutes, 30 minutes going into and really picking apart. So look, sorry, if you were looking for something very cerebral, we probably didn't do any of that justice. Jennifer did say, look, guys, at the end of it, she's like, I could have gone into so much more detail there. Is this what you want? No. <laughs> yeah. It was a perfect episode one for season two. It was it sets the foundation. It wets the whistle for so many topics we could cover. And just let us know, give us feedback, give us areas that you were like, I wish I heard more about X or Y. We can definitely make that happen. We've got plenty of time over the next six months. All right, Colin, I think we've come to the end of that. That's been good. It's been a busy episode. Just to make it clear to, again, new listeners that have made it this far, that normally all we're going to have is quick preamble, a decent interview and a bit of reflection at the end of the episode. Nice and simple for each episode going forward. This one, a little bit more complicated because lots of important information to cover. Colin, before we move, I move on to social plugging and call to action type stuff. Are you are you happy? Anything else you want to add? No. Man, a few words. I like it. No, that's good. Well, I'm going to do uh, one final plug for the Team Crucible website or the micro site where you can go and find not only this episode, but you're listening to it. So that's probably not that relevant. But you can see the launch video, which I think probably far more relevant. If you go to team-crucible.co.uk or just look in the show notes of this podcast equally you want to follow the warfighter podcast make sure you never miss an episode please go to linkedin and search for the warfighter podcast and in there you can just sign up to our newsletter every single episode goes out via the newsletter and on all the other social channels that's it that's it for episode one right on to dsci let's do it 